0: Welcome to this Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash HPG. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb. Hello, my name is Perry Elliott. I'm a professor of cardiovascular medicine at University College in London and a consultant cardiologist at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in this series of talks, we began with an in-depth review of the latest European Society of Cardiology guidelines for cardiomyopathy with Dr. Elena Arbello. In the second presentation, I explored some of the practical implications of these changes for practice and management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And in this third presentation, I'll answer some of your key questions. Now, one of the first and perhaps Most fundamental questions is how common is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as it seems that the more tests that we do the more disease that we'll find now for many many years the standard number that we've that we quote when we're looking at the prevalence of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in the population is is one in 500 and this number is probably correct if we screen young healthy individuals But importantly, the majority of these individuals have no symptoms. And when we look at populations of patients who have a diagnosis of HCM within hospital systems, for example, we find a much lower prevalence figure of maybe 3 to 4 per 10,000. So I think these give us, if you like, the two bookends of the prevalence figure. Within the population, unexplained hypertrophy, one in 500 but the proportion of patients who actually go on to have clinically relevant disease is probably much less than this. So the next question is is an interesting one. It's a a case scenario in which we have a 36-year-old man with a history of exertional breathlessness and lightheadedness. His electrocardiogram and echocardiogram are consistent with a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and this is also supported by his family history. And the question is, what should happen next to confirm his diagnosis? Now, at one level, we have a diagnosis. So the traditional way of thinking about cardiomyopathies is, is in the description of phenotypes defined by morphology and function of the heart. So if this gentleman has an abnormal ECG, an echocardiogram showing otherwise unexplained left ventricular hypertrophy, And if he has a family history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, then we can be reasonably confident this man has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The real issue is why does he have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? So really the next step in this gentleman is to perform a workup to try to, if we can, determine the underlying etiology of his condition. So the next question is is highly relevant to this case. When should genetic testing be conducted in patients and their family members? The rationale for this is that not only does it confirm the diagnosis, but we increasingly recognize that genetic information helps us in determining prognosis. It helps us to perform therapeutic stratification and allows us to advise individuals and families about reproduction And of course it also allows us to perform cascade genetic evaluation of relatives who might otherwise be enrolled into lifelong screening um, with ECHO and ECG. On average 50% of those individuals would probably be enrolled in such programs unnecessarily. So relevant to the, the question about genetic testing, the next one is fundamental. How important is the family history when evaluating a patient with S- symptoms suggestive of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. When we see a patient with a cardiomyopathy or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy specifically, we should be trying to take a three-generation family tree and asking specifically about each relative within that family tree. We're interested in premature sudden death, but also early-onset symptoms such as chest pain or breathlessness, history of device implantation, transplantation it may provide you additional information which help you in determining the prognosis of the patient that, you've, that you have in front of you and of course it's fundamentally in identifying parts of a family that may be at risk themselves of inheriting the disease so it fundamentally informs cascade genetic testing so family history is a key component of the diagnostic pathway in cardiomyopathies so the next question is a great one. I think it's a very sort of current question. If, if we have a, an MRI which shows us that a patient has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, do we really need to do an echocardiogram in 2023? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. All of these tests are complementary. So an MRI tells us about fibrosis. It may help us in differential diagnosis as in the case, for example, of cardiac or Fabry's disease. But echocardiography remains central as an initial screening test, but it's also fundamental in understanding, understanding the physiology of the disease, and in particular, left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, where baseline echo or echo during bedside maneuvers such as valsalva, or if you have symptomatic patients, exercise echocardiography. These remain central to the evaluation of symptoms in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So the the next question's a really good one, I think. So in in patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who have been conservatively managed for symptoms, at what point should I consider either initiating a myosin inhibitor or referring for invasive treatments, which essentially means septal reduction therapy with either alcohol ablation or surgical myectomy. Current guidelines would indicate that if you have a patient who has drug refractory symptoms, or if they have side effects from their medication, then that is the moment to consider invasive therapy. However, I think we recognize that there are a large number of patients who are on beta blocker, dizopiramide, or calcium antagonists, who have persistent symptoms but do not want to proceed with the potential hazard of an invasive treatment. And I think this is the gap where myosin inhibitors are likely to transform practice. So I think if you have someone who's been treated with first and second line conventional medication and they remain symptomatic, then that would be the moment to consider the use of a myosin inhibitor. If that patient remained refractory even to a myosin inhibitor, then you would proceed with conventional advice to counsel the patient on the pros and cons of an invasive treatment. So this turns the whole question around now. So the next question is, can a myosin inhibitor be initiated in patients that have already had a septal ablation? And the the short answer to that question is, is yes. Um, assuming that the reason why the patient remains symptomatic is because they have residual outflow tract obstruction. The only caveat to that advice is that the patient would still have to fulfill the criteria for safe initiation of a myosin inhibitor, perhaps the most important being a preserved baseline ejection fraction. If the patient has impaired ejection fraction following septal ablation or following surgery, then they should not currently be considered a candidate for a myosin inhibitor. So the next question is a really good one as well. Is, is there a wider team that I should work with to better diagnose and manage hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Uh, and my answer to that question uh, it really relates to a, a couple of key recommendations in the ESE uh, guidelines. The first is that it's recommended that all patients with chymopathy sh- should have access to a a multidisciplinary team with the necessary expertise in the diagnosis and management of cardiomyopathies. The team there refers to cardiologists, but it also to nurse specialists, genetic counsellors. But the key word in that recommendation is access to. It isn't necessary for every single patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to be referred to a highly specialised multidisciplinary team. But it is important to have access to those services for those patients who require additional input in terms of the diagnosis or the management of difficult symptoms, or indeed in the evaluation of complex families. The second key recommendation is that there should be timely and adequate preparation for the transition of care from pediatric to adult services. All cardiomyopathies can be and usually are genetic diseases. And for that reason, we have a growing population of children and adolescents whose needs in terms of their advice, lifestyle, indeed sometimes their specific management, changes as they age. And that transition phase can be very challenging. So it's important for us to collectively develop the necessary services and skill sets to allow us to transition them in a safe and effective way. So we've answered some really great questions related to the diagnosis and management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Of course, many questions remain unanswered. In terms of risk of disease-related complications, perhaps one of the biggest unanswered questions is how do we prevent progression to heart failure, which we recognize is actually probably over a lifetime the commonest risk for patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy It's a complication for which we currently have no therapy. In the field of symptoms, as you've heard in the presentations, we have many options for the treatment of obstructive disease. But for patients who have non-obstructive disease, our options still remain very limited. Unfortunately, we have a number of trials ongoing in this area, so perhaps some of the unanswered questions around the management of non-obstructive HCM will start to emerge coming years. And then I I suppose the third area is in diagnosis. We understand that many patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy have pathogenic variants in genes that encode cardiac sarcomeric proteins. But these only account for maybe 30, 40, maybe 50% of disease, and it still remains unclear what many of the other patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that we see every day in our clinics What is the cause for their disease? Is it as yet undiscovered genetic disorders? Is it other rare phenocopies? Could it just simply be a polygenic effect interacting with environmental factors such as hypertension, obesity, and so on? So I think reducing that pool of idiopathic disease is another one one of the key tasks that we have moving forward. So many questions, but I think every prospect of answering them over the next... Five to ten years. So we really hope that you found this helpful to your everyday practice. Next time we see a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we hope we've given you some tips and tricks about accurate diagnosis and importantly, a personalized approach to the management of the disease. We look forward to seeing you on future presentations. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.